Every year, one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hi, I'm Rob Smedley, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi everyone, it's TC here with another episode of Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35.2 wireless headphones. This week, for the first time in the series, we're speaking to an engineer, the brains behind the brawn in the pit lane, if you will. My guest is a guy who's worked in F1 for 20 years, and he's won races with the very best. He's worked on great cars, with great teams, and with world champion drivers. And he's also been known to deliver an amusing radio message or two. I'm talking, of course, about Rob Smedley. He's worked for Jordan, Ferrari, and Williams, although his tenure as head of performance engineering at Williams came to an end at last weekend's Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Now, Rob has a load of offers on the table, and while he ponders what to do next in his career, we thought it the perfect time to catch up. So get ready for a different kind of conversation to what we've brought you so far, but one that's every bit as enjoyable. Rob, welcome to Beyond the Grid. Great to have you with us. You're wearing Williams blue for the last time here in Abu Dhabi. Um, Emotional weekend for you, I guess. Yeah, a little bit. Um, I tend not to get too emotional about work, to be honest. I think I used to. I don't know whether it's an age thing, to be honest. It's different, you know what I mean? It's kind of like when I left Ferrari and I remember coming here for the last time in in 2013 to Abu Dhabi and just thinking, wow, big changes ahead. And that's kind of what's going through my my mind now. You know, I've been with the team for five years. We've had some highs, we've had some lows. I think that, you know, being able to to make some some decent progress in, in, in some areas. And it's kind of the end of, of, the road this time round with Williams, you know, and it's it's change ahead. And I think I, I read a headline from uh, Daniel Cardo today, which said that I think he said that he he feared the change or something like that of of, of going to Renault. And I think it, it's always like that in life, isn't it? You know, you're always kind of looking ahead. There's there's unknowns. You know, wherever I end up, whatever I end up doing, it's unknown. It's different. You know. But is this different because you don't yet know what you're doing next? Therefore, is, does it make you more nervous or do you find that liberating? No, I find it really liberating. You know, I've been waiting for a juncture like this for, for quite a while. The, the easiest way of putting it is that that I want to, I, I desperately want to spend more time with my family, you know, and I think that's become a, a more and more powerful draw as as my kids have got older while we're talking about family, we'll come on to engineering and stuff in a minute, but while we're talking about family, tell me about life in Italy when you were at Ferrari. What is it like being an Englishman in that team? Do you feel accepted? And did Italy ever become home with a capital H? Um, yeah, definitely, 100%. Um, they often, the, the, the lads there, you know, right across the board, actually, 
you know, mechanics, engineers, even, even you know, Stefano Domenicali used to say I was more Italian than I was English. And I think that's just because of the amount of passion that, that I put into, into what I do. In this sport, you've got to duck and dive a little bit, haven't you? You've got to, you've got to know your way around things and you've got to go to, you know, what is the, the ultimate or the, the, the quickest solution um, with, with the, through the path of, path of least resistance. And I think, you know, that's, that's part of being an engineer in Formula One. And I think that's definitely the Italian mentality. And, you know, I was able to, to, to fit right in with, with that mentality. You know, they, it was, it was very much Ferrari, you know, when I was there was very much a, a meritocracy. It was very much based on, on, on results. It was, it was a, you know, to all intents and purposes, a, purposes, a, a ruthless place. Cause it was just, you know, it was hundred percent focused on performance and, and, and results. But interestingly, there was a real warmth about the place, you know, there really was, you know, and, and it's, it's such a cliche to say that it's a, it's a family and, you know, family, you know, we're all one big family, but you really did feel like that when you were there, you know, you, the, I really did feel like they, not only me, but, but, you know, my wife, Lucy and, and, and the kids to a certain extent, we were, we were treated, you know, really well by them and, and, and always fairly as well. You know, when I, when I'd got things wrong, uh, I perhaps hadn't, you know, been a hundred percent, let's say with, with, with Ferrari themselves, you know, you, you knew where you stood with them. You weren't left wondering whether or not you'd done a good thing or a bad thing. You know, you'd done a, a bad thing, but equally when you'd done a good thing, you weren't left wondering whether or not, you know, you, you'd, you'd done something, um, which was helping them out. You know, they, they, they were always just very good. They, they wear their hearts on their sleeves, don't they? So, but there's not the feeling then in Maranello, it's the expats and us, the Italians, you all mixed together socially as well as at work? Well, it's such an international business, you know, it, it really is a, a, an international um, team that, of course, you know, numbers-wise, it's predominantly Italian, but definitely at engineering level, it's, 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 a, it's a real mix. But I think one of the, one of the things, one of the decisions that, that we made early on as a family was that, that, was that it would be wrong there and, and ensconce yourself to, to it would be wrong to go there and ensconce yourself into this into this expat community. You know, you don't want to um, exclude yourself from from an expat community. But but why go to Italy? You know, I didn't want to put my kids in an international school so that you know where the where the language was was English. I wanted to put them in a in an Italian school so they mixed with Italian kids. I didn't particularly want to just mix with an expat community. You know, and get the real feel for for, for what the real Italy's like. Well, while we're, while we're in Italy, then let's talk about that. It's a decade at Ferrari, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. You went there on the test team. I mean, just how did how did the opportunity come around and how did you end up being Massa's race engineer? So I, I actually had an offer from Ferrari the, the year before I went there. And I... Um, and, and all of that came about, it's a long story, but I might as well tell you because we've got time. So what happened was I was, um, Fizzy's engineer, Giancarlo Fisichella's engineer at Jordan. And then Giancarlo had done a reasonably good job for Eddie and he got the Sauber drive and the Sauber had the Ferrari in, the Ferrari engine in the back of it. And when he left, he was, as people always do, they're always very kind about, you know, their, their, the outgoing team and all the rest of it. But what he did was in that press release was he said, and I was quite a young engineer at the time, and he said, but one the one person who I really miss in this team is 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 my young engineer, none of you have heard of, but you know, he's a real 
the star of the future, which was really kind of him because it hasn't actually transpired to be the case, um, is Rob Smedley. And uh, Jean Todd picked up on this and said to Ross, which I don't know whether Ross, Ross appreciated it or not, but he said, you better get in touch with this guy um, because if he's a young lad and he's good, then then we want him in Ferrari. So I, I went to Ross's house and I spoke with him a little bit and actually, the job wasn't exactly what I wanted. Believe it or not, I was I was on the race team at Jordan and I kind of wanted a test team job. Not kind of, I wanted a test team job. Why? Because... From the outside, it looks like a battle with step. Because I'd, I'd done testing, then racing with Eddie, and I just really enjoyed the testing because I thought, you know, I'd, I'd, I, I always felt that I'd accelerated through all of that, that that whole grounding, that whole school too quickly. And I'd end up on the race team with, with not enough grounding of what, what racing cars do. And that was something that always played on my mind. And I thought, I want to go back to testing because it's purely about engineering. You know, there's no glitch, there's no glamour. It's just about the engineering. And it's just, you know, there's no there's no protocol as, as how you run and when you run it. The, the track opens at nine and it closes at five as it did in them days. And, and you just get on learning about racing cars. And I always wanted to go back on the test team. And Eddie didn't really have a test team and, and didn't want to, do that anyway so anyway i didn't take that the job that year which was 2002 2003 they offered me a job again and that's that's when i ended up going there so i went so i actually yeah turned them down the the, the first time and then there aren't up, many people that turn them down rob <laughs> engineers drivers or whatever not young lads in the mid-20s yeah. anyway yeah um no but it just wasn't i guess it just wasn't right for me so so i ended up going the year later and i loved it you know it was brilliant and it was just you kind of walk in and even as a young lad, you know, you're where you're quite naive to everything in the world. My eyes were very much open very, very quickly as to what the haves and the have-nots, you know, how, how that how that figures in Formula One. Um, and it's just an amazing place, you know, even back then. And I guess it was during that time on the test team that you worked closest with Michael Schumacher. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk Schumacher. Um, what impressed you about him? And with the experience you've had subsequently, can you appreciate perhaps even more how special he was yeah I, th I think I think what what impressed me both you know uh, uh, what impressed me about Michael was that, I mean there's two things really there's uh, at that stage you know the uh, pro professionalism with drivers now is the norm but he was this incredibly consummate professional that that I just didn't think you know I just didn't think that, that the driver's makeup was like that but it was and and he was into every single tiny detail you know and how that really manifested itself with the team was 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 it it drove the team along you know he was one of the driving forces you know we've not got to forget jean todd or or, or ross braun but but michael was very very clearly one of those driving forces and having somebody who lived and breathed and slept formula one and winning you know, John John once described him as a as a winning machine in a in a debrief to the team, and I thought, yeah, that's that's exactly the way you would you would describe him. The guy is a winning machine. That's what he does. But in a motivational way, he was the driving force, or, or in terms of hassling you, the young engineer, about something that he wanted done. Or ha I would I would never describe Michael as as hassling anybody. I think I think what Michael did was he just set the benchmark for everybody. He said, this is how it's got to be. This is the levels of excellence that we've got to attain. And then he expected that you would go away and get on with it. So so in, in effect, he was the perfect senior manager, if you like, but he just happened to be able to drive 
racing cars at an incredible speed and, and had a huge capacity to be able to manage what he was doing in the cockpit as well. But with that, one of the things that, that surprised me, you know, even as a young lad, when you look from the outside and, you know, I think, I think if there's any one word that, that is used to, to describe Michael for, for people who have a misconception about him, people who don't know him, it's, it's arrogant. And actually Michael is the polar opposite of, of, of arrogant, you know, He's the man with with all of that drive, with all the medals. He's got more medals than anybody. He still has. Maybe he will have more medals than anybody ever. We don't know. You know, maybe maybe Lewis can catch him, but if, if he can, it's it's probably once in a century or something that that people will get that number of of championships. But but what Michael was, he he had such a huge amount of humility, you know, and and he understood. You've never met a guy who was so reliant on teamwork and so willing to to put the team first in in his thought pattern at least as to as to where the importance was you know he first and foremost knew that or thought that the team was was the most important thing and then he came afterwards and it was an honor for him to be part of that you know even if he was a senior part of it and even if he was a a driving force in in all of it and even if let's face it it couldn't have happened without him because none of it could have happened without him he still had the grace and the humility to always put us lot first, you know, and and even though he did it in in a way that, that that was pushing us, after every single race, he never failed to go around every single person in the team, and shake their hands and and thank them for their efforts. And I think that that's incredible. Even people not on his car or just his car? No, no, even people not on his car. I mean, when I was, you know, don't forget, I was still in for part of the you know my tenure at Ferrari, which crossed over with Michael. I was on the other car. Um, with Felipe and for the other part was on the test team so often we wouldn't see him until you know two days after after the race but he might have been at a race he completely dominated it but the first thing he did was to come into the to, into the test team truck office and go around every single engineer and shake their hand and have a little chat with them and thank them and talk about the stuff that we'd done at the test you know he'd sit down with me and say oh that stuff that we did last week he said that really helped because we put that into you know practice or the tires that we chose and you were dead right about that and you know and he was always he was, he was just a great guy to, to work with. And I think once you've got a, a leadership with, with people like that in it, you know, it was, like, it was kind of like the, the, the triumvirate there at Ferrari between him, Jean and Ross. Um, and it was, it was never going to fail, to be honest. It was just so good. Has any driver you've worked with since come close? To be a complete driver? No. To be, to be that complete? I mean, I've worked with guys as quick as Michael. You know, and I think that's it's it's well documented that Michael perhaps, you know, wasn't always, not every single day was 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 the quickest driver. But to be so complete as a driver, because it's not just about speed. To be a great Formula One driver is not about is not just about how quick you are. You know, all these guys here are are quick and they can do it, you know, even if it's just once in a blue moon, they're bloody quick. But he was consistently quick, you know. He was mentally strong he had a massive capacity like you can't believe when he was sat in the cockpit you know the only guy who, who comes close to him that i've ever worked with is, is is fernando to have that amount of capacity while you're driving a formula one car at those speeds but to be orchestrating things as well is is just shows shows incredible intellect and talent but then on top of that he was able to galvanize you know what was more than a thousand people you know and, and bring them along and even the guys who worked on ruben's car you know, uh, or, or, you know, as lot on, on, on Felipe's car as it, as it, you know, then went to after, uh, after Rubens left, 
we were still all galvanized by him. We were still all galvanized by this goal of winning, you know, these, these putting more and more stamps on our world championship cups that we've all got at home, you know, and it was just, a, it was a great drive. He's a, he's a great guy. You mentioned Fernando Alonso's name there. In terms of speed, was there much between them? Between Michael and Fernando? Yeah. Um, again, you know, you know, you'd sometimes question whether Fernando is the fastest qualifier ever, you know. So he's a little bit similar to Michael in 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 that sense. But but where the difference is with with Fernando, like Michael, is he's just so consistent. He just never has a day off. You know, when you're on the other side of the garage, that's quite painful to deal with. You know, somebody who never has a bad day, you know, you want him to get out of bed and think, oh, yeah. You know, you sometimes I used to look at him and think, oh, he's having a bad day. We'll be all right. <laughs> we, we might just nick it. And then he would just go out and he would just do 20 laps in a row in, in, in the race, which were like qualifying pace. You know, they might be half a tenth of his qualifying pace. And you just think, wow, this, this guy is an incredible talent. But then when Schumacher leaves at the end of 2006, could you... Could you feel the dynamic change overnight? Totally. Totally. It was night and day. Totally. You know, he was he was still involved in in the team, you know, and there was thoughts at, at some point as to, you know, how, how involved he was going to be. And he, he never wanted to do that. And I think that was a shrewd move by Michael, to be honest. But he still had he still had involvement in the team. But but you know, it's it's obviously never going to be the same when when he's not driving, when he's not giving you that 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 day to day almost with testing and racing, that feedback of 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 where we are, of what needs improving, of you know of the areas where we need to work, and and don't worry about that. You've got to go and worry about worry about this instead. So so yeah, the dynamic completely changed, and and it's fair to say we all probably became a little bit rudderless without him. Right. So you as an engineer, you've gone to Ferrari. In fact, no. Let's rewind the clock, Rob. Where did this all start, this racing thing for you? Why why are you an engineer in Formula One and not doing aeroplanes or some other kind of engineering? Good question. Um, it all started when I was about 11. So my dad always used to watch it on the telly. Um, and we're going back to the old cathode ray tellies then, you know, so the quality wasn't very good and and, and you had Murray Walker shouting. And I I, I mean, I, I still am. I'm, a, I'm, I'm obsessed by by football. And and was even more so back in the day, you know. And I would I would often go and pay my um, I'm going to make myself sound ancient now, but there used to be what was called the bob end. It was it was it was fifty pence actually in them days to get in at the boys' end at Middlesbrough. So I always used to go and watch them on a Saturday afternoon. But every Sunday afternoon or every other Sunday afternoon, this thing called Formula One would be on the telly, and my dad used to sit and watch it. And I used to think, for God's sake, it looks dull as dishwater. You know, it's just cars going round. And there's no goals and there's not 11 players on each side and it just looks tedious. Anyway, in 1988, he said to me, do you want to do you want to go to the the British Grand Prix? You know, he, he'd never been to a live Grand Prix before. So he said, do you want to come to the British Grand Prix? So honestly, I felt a bit sorry for the old boy and I thought, oh God, you know what, I'll go along to keep him company. So we went along and it, and it rained for the weekend. I can remember that. And we were in a tent and I think it was a tent that he'd got off his dad, who'd got off his dad. It was like this scout's tent. and Sounds it was waterproof. Yeah, it wasn't waterproof at all. So we were dripping wet for the whole weekend. But I just had the best weekend of my life. I remember there used to be like a Thursday practice then. It was like a late on Thursday practice. And I can remember, ah, oh, here's, here's the good bit. So, so the only, so, so we got tickets for 
bless him, we couldn't actually afford tickets for the weekend. So we got tickets, general admittance tickets for, for the Thursday. And then once we got in there, we had to stay in the circuit for the, <laughs> for the weekend. So Bernie or whoever it is, sorry, but I probably owe you some money. <laughs> so we actually had to stay in the centre part of the circuit. But I can remember walking in, which is now the woodcut corner, and we kind of, you know, we have a ticket in. And then and then as I walked in, some cars, and, I, and it had been a LaRousse or something like that, come round the woodcut corner as I walked like over to the top of the bank and looked down and this car come round. And the noise and the speed of it, honestly, it just absolutely, as, as an 11-year-old kid, it just absolutely took my breath away. You know, and I was just transfixed by it. I just thought, my God, what is this? And then kind of the session went on and it finished. And, and I just watched, you know, with, with my mouth open and I thought, these things are incredible. And what we did was we kind of sneaked through the fences and then over into the centre section of the, of the paddock, of the, of, of the infield, sorry. And then I said, oh, I want to get close to the cars. Now, the paddock wasn't anywhere near as, as secure as it is now, but it was pretty secure, you know, there was high fences. So we kind of, it was the old paddock, you know, where the old paddock used to be at the top of Silverstone. So we walked around, we looked for like a, a, a part of the fence that perhaps wasn't well manned, let's say. And then my old man gave me a leg over the fence and then I leaned over and gave him a leg over the fence. And then we kind of ducked into the pits and there we were amongst the cars. And actually, it's a true story this just as we were like stood there and, and it was clearly clear that we were tourists, you know, we didn't have all these electronic passes and stuff like that, but it was clear that me and him were tourists and I were like, you know, a drenched ICI coats that he'd nicked from work or something. So I'm like looking around and thinking, my God, this is brilliant. And this security guard comes over to us and he says something like, oh, you two shouldn't be in here, should you? Just as he says that, we were outside the March garage, Leighton House garage, and one of the mechanics come out and he said, oh yeah, yeah, they are there with me. And he said to me, and the security guard said, oh, thanks very much, and totaled off. And we kind of like looked at this guy, who's probably only a young lad, like you know, one of the Balties that we've got here in the garage. And he said to us, oh, I've been watching you. He said, and he said, you shouldn't be in here, should you? I said, no, you haven't. He said, do you want to look around the cars? And he showed me around the cars, showed me and my dad around the cars. And honestly, I was just absolutely blown away by it, you know, and I couldn't believe how beautiful these things were. You know, they were absolute things of beauty, but engineering, and I'd always been interested in, the technical, you know, stuff. And I was always tinkering about in the garage, building stuff and and doing, you know, things like that. But, you know, it was kind of like the, the road to Damascus moment where you, where, where it all just like marries up where you've got like, you know, you've got maths and physics and, and technology and speed and competition and, and, and glamour and all the rest of it. And you just think, and I just thought, yeah, this is what I want to do. And I just worked from that moment on wanting to be in Formula One. And here I am having a sabbatical from it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love it so later. much. <laughs> odd years so later. then, of course, Loughborough comes and goes and everything yeah. was geared towards yeah. a career in... It was, was it, it was Formula One. It wasn't... There wasn't any other aspect of motorsport at that point. It was Formula One where you wanted to be. I, I think I was just... I think, especially as a young lad, I was dead interested in even the lower formula as well. And... You know, I was just a bit of a motorsports nut, to be honest. I became overnight like a, a, an absolute motorsports anorak and collected anything and everything. Are you quite about. an obsessive character? Uh, yeah, I am, yeah. In everything? Definitely, yeah. Yeah, I'm all in. I'm definitely all in. And and that's how I became about about motor racing and, and, and Formula One. And, you know, I would go down the the um, the local kart track. I would help out there, you know, just, just generally mechanicking. 
And I went from there to being, you know, almost like a, a professional cart mechanic, if you like, because I used to, you know, get in and get my hands dirty and I worked with some, you know, up and coming drivers and I actually got paid to do it. I couldn't believe the amount of money that you got paid to be, a, you know, in the British Championships to be a go-kart mechanic at like 14, 15 year old. People were like paying me like 120, 130 pound a weekend. It was like you'd won the pools if you're from Middlesbrough. <laughs> and and I just thought this was brilliant. And then I... And then I and then I, I got into I got involved with a rally team as well, a local um, a lad from Leeds who was doing the the British Championship. Um, so I was mechanic in like on on that, and then kind of just just got all this experience going through school and then and then through university. I worked for for Adrian Reynard whilst I was at university, and um, that was what really. What did you do for, for Reynard? I worked in the drawing office. I was a designer, and then and then pretty much straight after university, a guy called Mike Pilbeam give me uh, a job. Um, who's Kyron? Kyron at, at Renault. Dad. Yes, uh, Kyron Chief, Pilbeam, yeah. Chief Engineer at Renault, yeah. And yeah, he gave me a job. And honestly, Mike's a, you know, he's a he's, he's a wonderful man. He was a, he was ex-chief designer at um, BRM, at the old BRM factory, which was in Bourne. So I went out to Lincolnshire and I got a job with Mike and I was with him for, for a couple of years. And yeah, really clever, intelligent designer, you know, taught me, so many of the basics that I still use today in my job each and every day, you know, about um, structural analysis, about, you know, general um, mechanical design, design engineering, you know, the sums that you need to do. And, and, and that was great. And then went on from, from there and, and then kind of, you know, I always forget what I did in the early days. But also it's worth saying that this is pre data or pre a lot of the data that we have now, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so so and and you know the the, so the, the job's thing, changed a lot. The job's changed massively. The job has changed massively, and it and it's kind of, you know, you either you either get on the train or or mm. or you get left behind. So 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 I've had to change, and I'm evolving every day. And you know, I think that's one of the the things that I found that I I found and and do find you know so enticing about Formula One is that it's so technically complex, and the more we understand about it. As engineers, I think actually the converse is true. The, the the more we actually realize that we understand very little, and you know you're learning every day. And I think that's one thing that that I've been able to do, or, or I not been able to do. I do with relish is I embrace the complexity of it. I love how complex it is. I love the fact that you can't boil everything down to to a single number. You know there was a there was a period of time when we got into data. I think in the in the late '90s, early 2000s, where we said this is great, and we can have all of this simulation and all of this data, and and it's all going to boil down to you press a, a button on a computer, and and the right answer comes out. We're still centuries away from that. You still need the clever people with their feet on the ground who who have a feel for it, who back everything up what they're doing with 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 the data. You know, the data is is there to support human intellect and 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 intuition. You know, as engineers, we we have to be intuitive. You know that's where the where the word engineer comes from. It comes from a derivative of of of, of intuition and, and ingenuity. You might remember a couple of episodes back when I spoke to you about Harry's, the fantastic online shaving startup. It got me thinking about some of the famous F1 facial hair we've seen in the paddock over the years. Obviously, Fernando Alonso keeps his beard pretty tidy. And who can forget the classic Nigel Mansell and Keki Rosberg tashes or even Harold Ertl's magnificent beard and moustache combo. They all take a lot of maintenance, you know. And whoever your F1 style inspiration is, 
Harry's can help you out. Harry's have a special offer for Beyond the Grid listeners. You can pick up a trial set for £3.95 and all you've got to do is go to harrys.com forward slash F1 podcast. Now, the nice guys over at Harry's were kind enough to send me one of these trial sets. And I've got to say, it really is impressive. It's all very slick. The set arrives straight to your door in a neat little package with everything you need to get going. When you open it up, you find a weighted ergonomic handle ensuring maximum comfort and grip while you shave. Mine came in orange and silver, just so you know. And five precision engineered blades with a lubricating strip and a trimmer blade. But it doesn't stop there. Harry's also throw in a foaming shave gel, which feels fantastic on the skin, especially in these cold winter months. And there's a handy little travel blade cover to protect your kit as well. All of that, and you still get change from a fiver. It's a pretty amazing testament to the company that the quality of their blades is so high and yet still sits at half the price of other brands out there. So channel your inner Nigel Mansell and get started shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support F1 Beyond the Grid and get your trial set delivered to your door by going to harrys.com forward slash F1 podcast. That's harrys.com forward slash F1 podcast. How important is communication in your role now? I'm not talking about media. I'm talking about within the team, with, no, within yeah. the drivers. You know, you're, you're very well, good that, at this bit. But, but. Well, that, well, that part of it, I don't know if you've ever noticed, no, I mean, but it's one of my team, least favourite parts. <laughs> but within the team and and just sort of, I don't know, just talk us through how, how you go about the it's, job. Really. It's it's so important, you know, and it's it's it's... It's everything that is, what are you going to do if you're going to be successful in this business? And something that, that, that Mr. Jean Todd taught me very, very early on was that you got to surround yourself with the best people and surround yourself with people that you look at and say, right, you may not have my experience, but is he cleverer than me? And with my experience, would he be better than me? And, you know, if you take that as the bedrock of everything that you're doing, then, then you will be successful. It's almost a, it's almost a guaranteed formula. And I think that what you've got to do is you've got to surround yourself with with really good people and you've got to communicate to them, you know, even on a, on a very human level. You've got to be able to communicate with them. You've also got to be able to communicate what are sometimes fairly esoteric and, and, and ideas based on physics or mathematics. You've got to be able to communicate that, you know, and it's something that, that everybody understands. And, and you've got to be able to do that with engineers, which is which is one form of communication. But you've also got to do it with, you know, in in my job now, I will do it with with board members who have little or no technical aptitude. But I can't go in there and, and, and talk to them as as engineers. You know, if you're able to communicate and break things down, uh, because actually what you're trying to do is is make a pitch to get some money to to do a project. If if you're able to do that successfully, that's a form of communication. Then there's communication that we do at the track you know, which has to be succinct in, in some cases, you know, almost instructional, or I need commu- I need communication from you about what we're doing here. And that has to be, you know, communicated in a certain way. So I think, you know, being able to communicate with people is, is uh, right across the spectrum is, is the bedrock of, of being successful, especially in a business that is so fast moving. And I think that's the key point. It's, it's, it moves along at such a pace that if you're not communicating or being well communicated to, you won't be successful. It moves at such a pace. Is there a little bit of you that is nervous about taking time out? You worried you're going to get left behind? Uh, 
Not really, because I think that, you know, the, the, the core skills that, that, that perhaps, you know, someone like Mike Pilbeam taught me are still the core skills that, that I use today. So that, that will never go away. You know, the rules will change, but the rules are constantly evolving any, anyway. So, you know, what was valid this year, um, or there's a lot of what was valid in 2018, won't be valid in 2019 anyway. And then in 2021, we've got bigger rule changes coming along. So I think all of us as engineers, we have to adapt. And, and it's whether you're current and, and in it, you know, up to, the, up to the minute, or whether or not you've taken a few months out of it. I don't really think that changes. You know, I've been through this before. I've, I've had... I've had time out of it, you know, months of, of gardening leave, if you like, or long, even longer than that, long periods of garden leave. And you kind of keep up to date, you know, you, you communicate with, with old friends and colleagues as to what's going on, <laughs> whether that's right or wrong, as long as they're not giving you any trade secrets, you know, what's generally going on in the business and, you know, you, you usually hit the ground with your, your feet running. All right. Now, another driver I feel we must talk about is Felipe Massa, synonymous with him, really. Um, when did you first meet him and what were your first impressions? Well, actually, my first impressions of him were not when I first met him. So we did a test at Jordan in two... That I, I, I forget the year. It was either 2001 or 2002 and it was an end of season test and it was at Mugello. And I think there was... Jordan were there and we were testing... Um, we were with a guy called Narain Carthacane and, and Sauber were there. And Sauber were there with this kid called Felipe Massa. And it was his first run out in a Formula One car. And my resounding memory there, I think we'd been there a few months before, so we had all the timesheets and everything. But my resounding memory was just how quick he was. I mean, this guy was unbelievably quick for the first time he'd sat in a Formula One car. But he'd only strung about three laps together for the whole day because he was constantly in the gravel or, or, or shoving it into the barrier. I mean, I think he spun about 10 times or something, more than the famous 2008 British Grand Prix with him in the wet when he spun eight times. But it was his speed was, was there and it was apparent. And then we went into the first part of the season and again, he was just super quick, you know. I mean, you could see that and he would do times in qualifying that were incredible. And and for me, that was just so attractive in, in a driver. And even though I was a young lad in, in Jordan at the time, I remember saying to Eddie Jordan, you've got to have a look at this kid. Now, you know, Eddie was probably more interested in how big his bank balance was than to how quick he was. He'll shout at me for saying that, by the way, next time I see him. But, <laughs> but, you know it's true, Eddie. Yeah. But, but I said to Eddie, you've got to have a look at this kid. Anyway, it transpired that... Um, towards the end of the season, Felipe actually came in and did a seat fit with us. Um, at Jordan? At Jordan, yeah. He did a seat fit. And that was, I think it was the the end of 2002, if I remember rightly now. So that Mugello test must have been the end of 2001. So in 2002, he came in and did a, a seat fit with us. And um, Gary Anderson got me to, to look after him for the day. And that was the first time I, I actually met him and chatted to him. And he was just this enigmatic, really, you know, pleasant you know little chappy from 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 brazil and he hasn't changed really how, how advanced did those talks get because i guess this was for 2003 when he didn't actually yeah. have a race seat with sauber so that's right um the, well they got quite advanced and he'll tell you the story better than me but he's he's told me it many times so i guess i can pass it on second hand but i think it that eddie being eddie had said to him oh yeah yeah that you've definitely got the drive it's all in the bag and so it went so so felipe was sat at home waiting for the, for Eddie to give him a call 
And I think, you know, he'd call every, Eddie every couple of days and say, it's, it's all on, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely all on. Uh, <laughs> and then the guy called Ralph Furman came along, you know, Ralph's a lovely lad. And he came along probably with a lot more money than what Felipe had, which I think was um, a grand total of about zero. So he came along with with a lot more money. And then the first time that, that Felipe knew about it was when he read it on the internet, which <laughs> I think we were at the advent of internet in 2003. And then very soon after, he got the Ferrari test drive. So he was out on the market and he got the Ferrari test drive. Now, he always jokes, which I think is 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 very cruel to be honest that Eddie Jordan did him the biggest favor that, <laughs> that anyone's ever done him because you know had had he taken had he got that drive at Jordan then he probably wouldn't have got the Ferrari test drive and it wasn't a great car that 2003 Jordan although you know Fizzy won a race with it Brazil. he did win a race sorry yeah race. take that back it wasn't yeah. a great car though no was it not okay <laughs> so he gets the test drive and of course you then go to Ferrari don't you following yeah. there so he um, he did a really great job at, at Ferrari and got a load of miles in. And then I kind of crossed over with him just at the end. So when I went to Ferrari, he he just left and he was going to Sauber for the 2004 season. So our main test driver then in 2004, I think it was Luca, Luca Badua. And we probably had other people who used to run, but you know, back, back then the race drivers used to do a lot of the mileage or Michael used to do the pre- predominantly most of the mileage, you know, Rubens was Rubens and, and perhaps, you know, didn't, you know, <laughs> always get involved in testing as much as he as he as he might have done. But but Michael and, and Luca did most of it between them back in two thousand and four. I remember Michael sort of going back to Fiorano on the Friday of Monaco kind of that's how Yeah. Yeah, there was all the, it was, wasn't it? It's was really intense back then. There was all these legends, you know, of, of stuff that we used to do and, and yeah, that was that 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 was def that that's a true one that Michael came back one time. So so Fast forward a couple of years, you're ensconced at Ferrari. Massa comes back 2006. Now, you're not race engineering him at the start of that season, are you? No. Was it Gabriele Delicoli? It was Gabri, yeah, yeah. And what happened there? Well, I don't know, really. You know, I mean, I, I got Gabri, Gabriele is a, you know, he's a good mate of mine. And I think he's a, you know, he's a, he's a great race engineer. You know, he had a really long, long career in Formula One as a, as, as a race engineer. But, you know, there's that with Gabriel just come off the back of a campaign getting pasted by Michael Schumacher with uh, Rubens Barrichello. And and I think that he was probably, you know, desperate to get Felipe in the driving seat and to and perhaps to, to you know, to to get the upper hand on, on Michael, which Felipe, you know, definitely had, you know, had the speed to do on occasion. But of course, at that age, you're never going to beat Michael Schumacher. And I don't know, it was kind of just a human relationship between them, between the two of them, that I guess they just didn't get on. You know, Felipe, in general, he always says, you know, why did him and I get on so well? Because I kind of put the order into his mess, if you like. And I think that's that's true for, 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 the, for the two of us, you know what I mean? And, and, and Gabri's probably... You know, what kind of opposites attract? Is that kind of yeah, a, a little bit like that? You know, he's he kind of just needed an engineer who engineered for for him, you know, and and, and got everything organised and and ticked all of those boxes. And I was quite happy to do that. And and you know, it was an interesting project as well to take this kid who was probably not going to get another year's deal at Ferrari if we if we're completely honest. You know, at that stage we were four races in when when Ross drafted me in to run his car. So what race? What was your first race? My first race was San Marino. Uh, no, not San Marino. I'm wrong. Um, the so, so Felipe did the first four races 
up to San Marino and then and then the first race for me was Nürburgring. So I don't I'm not even sure I'd, I'd he, I'd he, I don't know what his results had been but they hadn't been very good. And I remember sitting down with with Ross and Ross said to me look the the thing is what we think he's good and we think that we're vindicated in our decision to take him as a race driver but what we also think is we're not getting the best out of him. Now, what you've got to do is either prove us right or prove us wrong. So I was like, all right, <laughs> thanks very much. <laughs> no pressure there then. And the first thing I did with him, because it was kind of, this all happened on like the Monday before the race. So time to prepare was zero. <laughs> and the first time I actually met him professionally as his race engineer was on the Thursday morning in Germany. And what I met was, and he'll tell you this, you know, looking back on it, what I met was a scared little boy who had the weight of Italy and Ferrari on his shoulders and just didn't know where to turn. You know, he couldn't... Scared of failure. Scared of failure. You know, he couldn't sit still. He was. He still has this nervous twitch, which really annoys me, actually, where his foot's going all the time. And I'm saying, stop! <laughs> Even if you're watching television or something like that. It sounds like we're married, doesn't it? Um, <laughs> like we're doing something. Or you're in a restaurant and his foot's going all the time. He's stop! Stop doing that. But anyway, he, his, his whole body was like going. It was like, and he was just gibbering he was like a gibbering wreck <laughs> i might be exaggerating it but he he wasn't he wasn't particularly happy in himself and i said look you know what what's the problem you're 23 24 years old or whatever you're a ferrari race driver you know what's your ambition and what he'd had drilled into him i i need to beat michael i said whoa 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 let's stop with all of that we're not going to beat michael you know michael's what was he then he got seven world championships at that point. So Michael's a seven times world champion. Michael's the darling of the team. You know, that's not going to happen. So let's rewind and think about how we're going to rebuild this from, from zero. And it was just about putting in, it was first of all about getting him, you know, down off the ceiling so that he could actually do his job. And then it was about building up from there. The speed was there and the speed was apparent, you know, back in that test in, in Mugello in 2001, the speed was 100% apparent. And and once you've got that as an engineer, you know it's it's you, you can do the rest. You you can build the rest. You definitely can. And I've done that so many times now in 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 my career. You know, with the help of some great colleagues, of of building up the rest of it. But you've got to have the speed. What we can't do as engineers is we can't engineer the speed into a driver. But once that natural raw talent and speed is there, then we can do it. And and I knew that Felipe had that. It was clear that he had that. And it was then just about building up from there and putting it all together and, and making him, you know, kind of structuring the the is is his growth for him. And I had a great guy who, who worked with me, who was his performance engineer, if you like, um, or or vehicle engineer as it's called there. A guy called Giuliano Salvi, who's now Kevin Magnuson's race engineer down at Haas. And I think we just formed a, a great little trio, to be honest. You know, we all understood each other. We were all really honest with each other. So when we got it got it wrong. We certainly didn't mince our words. You know, we all went out drinking as young lads do together. Um, we would have fun together. Um, Including Felipe in that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd yeah, come yeah. out with you. Yeah, yeah. No, we would, we would often do that. We would often, you know, have a great result somewhere and say, do you know what? Let's not get the plane home tonight. We'll go and do a bit of boozing somewhere. <laughs> uh, and uh, T-Total Racing Driver comes out. T-Total Racing Driver. They were a bit different back then. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, none of them are teetotal, by the way. <laughs> but Rob, the results were immediate. I mean, I don't know what race Turkey was. How many races have you been going until we got to Turkey? Not many. Um, I mean, well, I think actually that first race in Nürburgring, he was on the podium. And that was the first time he'd been on the podium. And that was the first time he, you know, had actually showed what, what he could do. Michael won the race. And Felipe was was third. He was he was on the podium, and and the the scenes of joy on the pit wall, pure joy afterwards were were brilliant. And I can I have a resounding memory of Ross, who's who's you know as a, again has been someone who's been a great mentor to me um, throughout my Formula One career. I have a resounding memory of of Ross as big as he is coming up and giving me this big bear hug on the pit wall. And like kind of, you know, my feet were like three inches off the ground. He's a big bloke, Ross, isn't he? And he just, and he said to me, he, he, he kind of like, you know, said in my ear, I knew you could do it. I knew you'd do it. And then like just walked off. And that's wow. all that, that's all the... When the Ross Braun of, says that to you as yeah, a young guy. Yeah, a lot, I guess. It, it, it means a huge amount. There was also the perception at the time that Ferrari only cared about Michael. And that kind of debunks that theory a bit. Yeah, it wasn't, that wasn't the case at all. You know, I mean, of course, of course... You know, any team from its leadership down would be absolutely crazy to, to you know, not to to back the guy who's going to get you the championships, which was Michael. You know, but what they also cared about was the future. And everything that I've just told you completely, you know, tells you that they did care about the future and they did put this this huge amount of effort into in, into Felipe and, and and bringing him on. And and as as you know, as you as you just pointed out that. We very quickly got to pole positions and and race wins and faster slaps and it was kind of like you know as we built up and and went along everything started to fall out. Now some of the younger listeners probably don't even remember the Turkish Grand Prix, but what why was he so good in Turkey? Right, three consecutive wins, and he just he just nailed that track every time. Yeah, so 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 there's there's three corners there that he had a line through there which I kind of picked up. This was the great thing with Felipe, is that we used to pick up on why he was quick before he picked up on why, on why he was quick. And then we used to say to him, like quiet word in his ear, it's because of this, keep doing that. So he had a line. Did through, that happen throughout his career? Yeah, 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 it always happened. It always happened. <laughs> and sometimes we would, all three of us, be scratching our heads saying, Do you know what, we've got no idea, but just whatever you're doing, don't change it. But a lot of the time we were able to pinpoint and say, right, this is it and this is it, and this is what we need to do with the car in order that you can affect what you're trying to do in, in this series of corners. And so I think it was, if uh, thinking about the corner numbers, it was, it, was turn, it was turn six and seven and he had a line through there where he just, you know, caned his teammate through there and was really quick. So it was a left-hander, then a right-hander before you got into that really fast triple apex right-hander turn eight. And then it was the corner after that. And then he had a line, um, he had a certain way of driving. And and we used to set the car up in a, in a certain way there, which was which was quite counterintuitive to how you would think setting it up for, for a, a circuit like that. So he used to set the car up there, uh, mainly concentrating back in them days on, on, on front locking. And if you got rid of the front locking, then he could do these lines. You know, there's three places around the circuit where he could affect the line that he wanted to. And he was just super quick. Super, super quick round there. It was a joy, actually. It was, it was like Bahrain. It was like one of those ones where, where you're watching it, going into it, thinking, "No, are we going to be on pole?" But how, how much can we be on pole? You know, <laughs> wow, confidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, of course, the relationship with Felipe uh, grows. You guys get closer, and then there are these. You know, a lot of the, a lot of people listening will know about the radio messages. 
And there's two I want to pick up on, if I may. Um, Felipe, baby, stay cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things you wish you'd never said. <laughs> Malaysia 2009. He's banging on about wanting a white visor, whatever that means. Yeah. Um, Clear visor. That's what he means by white. But okay, yeah. yeah. Um, but have you called many drivers baby? I mean, just... Well, it's, you know, it's quite a revealing comment in terms of, on quite quite a few levels. Yeah, I think I think what it what it what it shows you. you see, because we 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 listen to the radio now, and the radios are open, so everybody listens to them, and people are probably a, a little bit more guarded. But I think what it I, I think you know it's one of those things that that you definitely wish you'd never said, <laughs> or you or you wish it hadn't been made public. That, that that's the first thing about it because people have it on their on their telephones people have ringtones of it that's true you know somebody once said to me oh people have ringtones at that huh and i thought yeah whatever and then i was sat in a restaurant one time and it went off and i'm like oh my god i can't believe this you know somebody's phone gone off and it's gone fully baby stay cool this is embarrassing <laughs> Want the world, want the earth to swallow you up, but I think, as you say, it kind of reveals things on on a lot of levels. It reveals how the relationship that we had, first and foremost. I think that when you look at it, it's kind of just what it's just two lads at work, you know, and it's one lad who perhaps isn't, you know, one 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 of those lads perhaps isn't doing, you know, the best. He isn't being the best that he can be in that moment in time. And it's the other lad who, you know, they've they've both got a great relationship which transcends a professional relationship and and you know they they they're able to talk to each other how they want to talk to each other. And it's one of them just saying to the other one, you know, snap yourself out of it and 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 check yourself on kind of thing. So given the partnership, the relationship, how hard is a comment like Fernando is faster than you? I'm talking about Hockenheim 2010 when you want yeah. Felipe's leading and you want them to swap. How much does it hurt you to deliver that message? Yeah, really difficult to be honest. Um, I think that, you know, looking back, we all we all made mistakes that day. All of us, all of us who were involved in that, we all made mistakes and 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 me included in all of that. Um, what do you mean? I just think the whole, you know, I, I still don't you know agree with the, with the fact that we needed to to deploy team orders at that point you know why did we need to deploy team orders at that point in the season you know that's it's it's probably taking ruthlessness <laughs> a little bit too far in your quest for the championship and of course there's going to be Ferrari four. had four men doing that though didn't they Austria, yeah, they Austria 2002 and yeah they did but then you've got a new management structure in there at the time but you know you know whatever and then and then perhaps the way that that I went about it as well I could have done a better job of it but you know I think all of us let let emotions run away with us that day including the two drivers you know the way that that, that Felipe actually affected the overtake in the end by pulling over on on, on the exhibit hairpin you know <laughs> and trying to make it as 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 you know, as 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 obvious as as he possibly could, um, you know, it, it, none of it was was it wasn't a great day for any of us, and and thankfully, you know, we've all the key players in all of that. I think we're all still good mates, um, and I, I think that probably shows the 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 strength and the closeness of of our relationship. You know, I know that Stefano got Stefano Dominicali got a really hard time. And and probably in 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 everybody, if I felt sorry for anybody in all of that, of course I felt sorry for Felipe. But but the aftermath of it, I really felt sorry for Stefano because I think he got such a hard time for it. 
um, not only from from the media, but from you know from inside Ferrari as well. Um, I got a hard time as well. We all got a hard time, definitely inside inside Ferrari. We all certainly had to go to the headmaster's office on many occasions with school books down our trousers. Um, okay. Just because of the way you executed it, that was the issue within inside Ferrari. Yeah, yeah, definitely the way that it'd been executed and and the fact that it didn't go according to plan. And if you look back and and you say, right, well, let's do a let's do an operational review of what we could have done, then then things could have been, you know, yeah. done so much better. Going back to what you were talking about, communication. You know, had we communicate, had we had these these conversations up front and and things being communicated again. You know, in the heat of the moment, to to suddenly say we're going to have team orders, that that's just you know, I found it a little bit difficult to deal with. But you know, it it happened as as it happened. It kind of transpired and and turned into what, what you'd probably describe as a train wreck. You know, it was great. It was it was front page news, and I remember you know turning on the radio to go to work when I was going to work on the morning. I used to listen to, to digital radio. Um, when I was over in Italy, and I think I was on every, I was on BBC Radio One, Radio Two, Radio Four. I was on every single news bulletin, you know. So it, it was a massive story, um, and I think that you know, it, as with anything in life, it's not, you know, we all do things that perhaps we can all look back on and think, well, I could have done that differently. But then it's how you deal with it afterwards, you know. I think that's what, what that is. The maketh of the man or or the woman is is how you deal with the aftermath. Well, talking about dealing with the aftermath and the making of the man, Brazil 2008, the way Massa dealt with that loss to Hamilton on the last lap, I thought was in, incredibly... Oh my, I, I was actually quite... I, I was so emotional watching it because he handled himself so well, didn't he? How tough was that for you, that whole aftermath and what did you say to, to Felipe yeah I mean the the actual the immediate aftermath you know people people always think that the hardest thing for me was delivering the message that he wasn't world champion but what you got to remember is I was still at work you know I was doing my job so so actually that as, as all I was interested in was where you know people were trying to drag me off the pit wall and saying we've done it we've done it you know and like jumping on me and congratulating me and hugging me and saying We've done it with world champions, but I knew we weren't. I knew that I had to see, you know, those two little dots on the GPS. Uh, you know, I was intently watching Glock and uh, and and Lewis, and and seeing how that played out. And kind of as everyone's trying to drag me off the pit wall in the last corner in turn twelve in Brazil, I thought to myself, you know, shit, he's a, he's ahead. You know, I, I think he's ahead, and I, and I'm trying to intently watch it while you've got all of these like, you know. <laughs> mechanics and engineers like trying to drag me off and then as they're coming up the hill I thought he's definitely ahead that's 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 Hamilton that's the McLaren ahead on the GPS and then I like looked at page one and his name flashes up as as having come fifth and at that point you know it was a fairly simple message it was just to say oh you know mate you've done a great job you know we've done a great job all year we come here you know with with a very slim chance of doing it and actually you know we we'd gone there with that in mind that the, the championships is, is Lewis's. We're going to go out there and have a bit of fun. But in fact, there was always in, in the back of, of, of my mind and actually what I put in the, the guys' minds as well, the lads who work on the car, was that we have a real strong chance here. You know, the form that Felipe's in and it's Brazil. And, you know, you've got a guy who's in his second year of Formula One who can completely get it wrong, which, bless him, he almost did it at that age. 
um, we've got a real chance. So let's go into it and let's let's do you know our maximum. And it was about not conveying that to Felipe. It was about keeping Felipe away from that. But as we edged you know more and more through the weekend, it became more and more apparent that this is really on. So and then kind of to you know we fell at the the very final hurdle. And it was then, you know, just delivering a normal message, just saying we've done a great job. We've we've all we can all be so proud of each other. But we're not world champions, but hey, we missed it by a point. And and we've and we've lost out to a great competitor and a guy who's gone on to be, you know, the greatest driver of his generation. So I don't think there's any disgrace there. Where the emotion come out was when I stopped work. You know, you stop work and and kind of, you know, you take your headset off and you and you go away. And you you kind of sit down and and I found that this feels a bit funny. This doesn't feel like, you know, a normal win or, or loss. This this actually feels much more profound than that. And then I got really emotional. And actually, I, I went away and I, and I cried for for about an hour. And I was just on my own. I just found a little quiet part of, of the garage that was kind of like boxed off. And I sat there and every so often I'd like compose myself and I think, yeah, I'm all right now. And then I start crying again. <laughs> and then it took me about an hour to, to actually compose myself. And then, you know, because it was just the, um, it was just, you know, that that intense emotion of competition for a full year. And I think I'd have been like that if we'd have won it, to be honest. I'm I'm fairly convinced because because the emotion was, you know, the the you've you've kind of put your mind, body and and, and spirit into it and everything it not nothing else has mattered for for twelve months, you know, to get yourself into that situation. And then it's just the emotion that comes pouring out afterwards. So yeah, at the time I, I wasn't, you know, right in the very immediate aftermath, I wasn't emotional, but but for a couple of hours afterwards, I was very emotional. In terms of professional disappointments, is that it? Uh, do you know what, Tom? I don't, I don't think it is because I think there was so much joy that went with that. I, well, you won the race convincingly. Well, we won the race yeah. convincingly. Did you take don't... any pleasure from winning that race? Oh, then? yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, can, I can remember, you know, we even kind of had a strategy of how we would how we would, uh, you know, approach the media that weekend. And it was, you know, pretty much play a cool trigger, you know, of, of, of every single time, you know, we were fastest in practice, then we were fastest in qualifying. And it was kind of like, yeah, but we're not bothered. We just did have a good race, you know, and, and you can see like the, you know, on the other side of it, McLaren were getting, you know, under more and more pressure and, and more and more this black cloud over them. And we were like, yeah, we're all right. We're just, we're just having a bit, just a bit of fun, isn't it? Where, you know, we were obviously going through the same emotions as them, but yeah, no, I, I don't think it is the biggest professional disappointment. I think, you know, I would, there's 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 the stuff that's gone on before and since that is a much bigger professional disappointment where you just think, well, we've 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 utterly failed to 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 deliver on on something, and and that may be a project, or it could be, you know, it could be a, a project within a a small technical project. It could be a whole car or something like that. Where you just think, wow, this is really disappointing, and you know, we've put our all of our you know professional competencies into this, and you know, be it a a structure or a car or you know a, a, a technical structure or a car or whatever and it's not working and and, and things like that are hugely disappointing more disappointing than than you know having a great year like we did in 2008 just before we move on from felipe um his crash in hungary um i suppose a lot has been said and written about how he dealt with it but we've learned over the last few minutes just how close you and him were um, how did you deal with it? Yeah, that was that was a real difficult one, actually. And 
I questioned for definitely in the immediate weeks afterwards, I questioned whether I wanted I wanted to be involved in it or not. In Formula One. In in Formula One, you know, because we had become we kind of like just, you know, on this little roller coaster of 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 joy and happiness and and <laughs> at work. And then all of a sudden you get hit with the realities of what Formula One can be. And you know, kind of what what came out of that was that you know I made a promise to myself that that I would never get this close to another driver again because if I was going to be involved in it, then I didn't want to go through the 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 personal you know turmoil that that I'd gone through in the immediate aftermath of of Felipe's crash. But you know, time goes on and 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 you're able to deal with it. You know, I can that that the, the whole thing uh, again. If you think about, I mean, I wouldn't call that a professional disappointment, but it's the worst moment of my career, without a doubt, when you see your mate almost get killed at work. And as all he's doing is he's come to work to do his job. You know, okay, it's a little bit different to to other people's job perhaps, but but that's all we're doing. We're here doing our job, you know. And, you know, when you see, yeah, essentially your mate almost getting killed at work, that, that's quite hard to deal with. And not having that professional not being able to to call upon a, 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 a say a, a professional barrier that that stops you you know becoming so emotionally you know in, in embroiled in all of that and I can remember you know one of the worst things for for me was that his his little brother was there Dudu who'd come to Hungary um, to watch the race and God how old is Dudu now he must have been early twenties then something like that. And he was just like a little boy lost, you know what I mean? And there was kind of, uh, for about 24 hours, there was only me and him. It felt like, you know, people who were really close to Felipe, there was there was just me and him. And and it was kind of, you know, just just waiting and and, and praying for, for, for news. But we were waiting, you know, that Felipe was in a coma in the immediate aftermath. Um, and then they put him in an induced coma and, and, you know, things actually didn't look that great to start off with. And then slowly, you know, it was slowly... You know, it, it it started to improve, but it was after days that it started to improve. You know, it was a long time that we were sat there waiting to see, you know, whether or not he would recover. And and your immediate thought is that you just want him to, you know, it was kind of people were would would you know even come out with something as crass as oh, I wonder if he can ever drive again. And you think, well, I don't care whether he can drive again. That doesn't matter. You know, to his to his wife and his family. You know, his mum and dad who come across, and then his wife Rafa who flew across. They all come from Brazil on the first plane across there, you're like, well, it doesn't matter. You know, it's 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 a man we've got laid here. You know, a young man we've got laid in a coma from from a horrific head injury in a hospital bed in intensive care. You know, it's not a Formula One driver. Forget about that. That's just all second nature. Um, sorry, that's all second order. Um, we just, you know, want him to recover as a man. And then slowly, you know, that recovery started and, and you know, there was... It, uh, I, I actually I stayed there for I think for the, the Monday and then and, and the Tuesday as well and then and then you know there was starting to be some more positive signs and they were going to be able to bring him out of what was then an induced coma and then I went home and then I come back on the Saturday I think it was it was the Saturday of of that 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 week so it was mm-hmm. seven days after the accident and he was actually out of intensive care and in a room on his own. And I remember wandering into the room and, and, and due to his little brother come and met me at the airport and then said, you're going to get a shock when you see him. And he kind of had like this head about the size of a beach ball, um, which was all black and blue. 
And I kind of like looked beyond him and thought, oh, where's Felipe? Oh, there he is. He's the one with the with the, with the football-sized head, and the, which is all black. And he looked dreadful, but it was quite funny. I mean, it was a, it's a good story that we always look back on and, uh, and, and laugh about now. Because the first thing he said to me was, uh, he kind of looked at me like a bit like puzzled and thought, who are you? And then like it dawned on him who I was. And then he said, when's the next race then? And I said, well, not for a few races, not for a few like a few weeks yeah and he was like well we better start getting fit then <laughs> i was like oh perhaps he's a bit was more that, so that was his first thing i want to get back in the car yeah there was but never was, any doubt in his mind but he was but yeah but to be honest with you tom he was so confused he didn't know where he was or what he was doing you know i don't think he even knew who he drove for then he just knew that he was a he was a formula one driver and he'd kind of convinced himself and then it was his mum who took me aside and said oh you just just kind of like agree with him so i was just saying oh yeah you'll be back in the car in a couple of weeks no problem you know look at you you're fighting fit uh, and bless him so we kind of um went through this little charade for a couple of days in in budapest with him and then he was there for about another three weeks or two weeks maybe and then he took a hospital plane back to brazil and then he was in hospital for in Brazil for a while. And it was a slow recovery. You know, he didn't come back right until the very end of the season. And um, where we, we put him in a 2008 car, I think, and, and went testing with him. Now, how was he when he did that first test? Uh, well, he was, I mean, that was the big question mark, wasn't it? Whether or not he'd recovered or not. Um, whether or not he, he was going to be anything like the old Felipe, you know what I mean? Who, who was on like this, this ascent to, uh, ascent to stardom, if you like. And I can remember um, the most nervous person in all of it was, was Stefano Dominicali. And he was funny because Steph kept, you know, he would, we would have to have like daily meetings with him about this test that we were going to do. And he would be like, now make sure you do that, Robbie. And make sure we do this, Robbie. And he was like, yeah, yeah, all right. <laughs> and he was like on my back all the time. And he was like, and then, and then we went to Magello and he called me after we'd done about two runs. So Steph called me after about two runs and he said, how is he? How is he? Is he all right? <laughs> and I was like, and as you said to him, look, I said, I sat and watched his first lap on new tires. I, you know, kind of watched it on telemetry. I said, there's no different. There's absolutely no difference in speed. You can see from the way he drives the car, how fast he reacts to things, you know, the, 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 the speed of the lap itself, how we, gets the most out of tires you know first time out he hasn't lost anything in terms of speed he's lost absolutely nothing and 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 still to this day i'm i'm absolutely convinced that that's the case you know he didn't lose anything 100 he didn't lose anything things changed for him the dynamic of the team changed for him you know fernando came in perhaps you know overall he felt a little bit less love than what he'd felt before and and that changes it you know that that, that dynamic can 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 result in in actually you know different results and i think that it was there was there was a small quarter of 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 the general public i think that that would always say oh he changed after that accident but he didn't 100 percent. i can i can guarantee you um the very small mortgage that i've got that he didn't change well that's that's great to hear isn't it so look we then let's look ahead in terms of well we talk about massa but you, you then go to williams um and I'm I'm sensing a lot of love for Ferrari from you, so so why why did you leave? Was there ever a a moment when you just thought I'm really happy here, I don't want to leave, or what were you looking for that made was, you start looking elsewhere? I think I was looking for 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 a new challenge. To be honest, I I think 
you know, you're right. You know, I do, I do love Ferrari. Anybody who's been there for for a long time, um, you can't come out of it with anything other than love for for Ferrari. And I would dearly like to see them win again. You know, as as I, I still, there's still a large part of my heart that 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 has remained in in Ferrari. But you know, it just felt like the right time. Um, it felt like the right time for personal reasons as well. You know, my kids were getting to an age where it was time for proper school. We decided as a family that we would like to do that in in England. You know, we'd been there for ten years. It's a long time. You know, we're very, we are. You know, me and me and my wife Lucy were completely family orientated. So that not just our nuclear family, but if you like our our both sets of parents and and, and siblings and all the rest of it. You know, that's really important to us. So it was important that we come back to England so we could. You know, it's not just a, a professional reason, it's it's a personal reason as well. And then he was just looking for a new challenge. And I just thought, you know, Williams, it, it definitely offers that. It offers the, that that challenge. Um, I saw what I guess a lot of people couldn't see because they were having a season like, like perhaps we're having this season, but there was potential there. There was potential. And there was actually potential, perhaps more so than now, to turn it around really, really quickly with, with a few, you know, correct decisions and, and some some technical structure changes if you like or some changes to the technical structure it was it was clear that we could make inroads quite quickly and then the next part of it would be more difficult um you know it was going to be a long road to to get beyond that as it's been but certainly in those in those first years it was clear that we could do something good and I just relished the challenge and I've always loved Frank you know he's 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 an inspiration he's an icon and coming and working for Frank and, and, and for Claire was, it was too good an opportunity to miss. You know, I've loved, I loved working with, you know, Pat Simmons convinced me as well. Pat's a good mate of mine and and he kind of, you know, give it the big sell. <laughs> I'm sure he'll thank me for saying that. And and yeah, I ended well, he was there. right because for two years at least, it was great, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It was brilliant, you know, and, and, and it had a real, you know, feel good factor about it. We just made a lot of sensible decisions in in 2014 and 15. We definitely, you know, in in terms of operations, were able to improve things, race operations a, a great deal. You know, in the way that we go about things and, and and how much performance we can extract from the car and doing that consistently, weekend, weekend, weekend in, weekend out. And and yeah, it was it was good. You know, it's it's a shame that that development hasn't we haven't kept up with with the the required amount of development that we've needed. You know in a lot of areas of the the technical performance, if you like. But that'll come, you know, the challenge is ahead of them and they've they've got to get their heads down and get on with it. And Robert Kubica coming back to the team? Yeah, great. Coming back know. to racing. Yeah, coming back yeah, exactly. Coming back to do racing. You have a lot of time for Robert. I mean you've, he's been around a lot this year, isn't he? Yeah, I do actually, because you know what, one of the things that, that people say, Oh, are you gonna miss Felipe? And I, I always said, Well, not really, because he's you know, he's 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 like one of those painful mates that's never off the, the telephone to you. So I don't miss him in any way, shape or form. But where I do miss him is on a race weekend because I miss having, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm quite a private person, which people find a little bit surprising. And I'm not a Facebook mates type of person. I'm a real mates type of person. So if you're my mate, you're my mate. And I don't many, have many of them. And having Felipe here on a, on a race weekend was, it was good because I had my mate and I had someone who I'd gone have a cup of tea with and, just have a chat with you know in 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 amongst the 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 mayhem of, of of Formula One, and you know I obviously can't do that with our two drivers because they're twelve and thirteen respectively or whatever. So you know as a, as a man, I 
it would be wrong of me to say I have a lot in common with them. But having someone like Robert, who's been around the block and somebody who knows Formula One and, and somebody who's just, you know, genuinely, you know, what what's so lovely about Robert is he's like Felipe in that way, is that they're down to earth and is all they want to do is race. They, they, you know, they live and breathe Formula One and racing cars. And, you know, that that's their reason for getting up on a morning. And I think having somebody like that to, to be able to chat with, for me, has been been an absolute lifeline this year. It really has. You know, it's made coming to races a joy and, and being in the factory when he's there. And I think he deserves a chance, you know. It's it's such a hard luck story, but he's not a guy who's down on his luck, if you like, you know what I mean? That's what that's another great thing about him. He's kind of, he's a go-getter. He's, he's made a decision a couple of years back that he wants to come back to Formula One and he's railroaded his way into it. And here he is, he's got his chance and the best of luck to him as, as you know, if I, I just... I, I desperately want it to work out well for him. Do you see any reason why it won't? No, 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 absolutely not. I think that, you know, people talk about his, his, his condition and there's a lot of people who say, oh, well, how, how on earth can he drive the car and all the rest of it? But, you know, I'm a Roman Catholic and so I'm a, I'm a big believer in, in, in what the, uh, the, the, the big man does things that we can't, we can't um, understand at times. And there you go, that's one of them. Tell me if I'm wrong, but a racing driver has, what, five touch points with a car, doesn't he? Two hands, two feet, Correct. and your, and yeah. your, and your bum. Yep. And he's missing, what, 25, 20%, 20% of those touch points or, or not? Uh, well, so you would think, as I said, you know, um, that's exactly the way you would look at it, you know, as, a, as an engineer, if you had to make a decision without knowing or seeing what, what we've seen, then, then yeah, that's it. But I think there's, there's, there's so much evidence to the contrary, even if you want to believe that, you know what I mean? And I, and I went into it certainly last year saying this can't work kind of thing. I don't know why I went into it thinking that, but I was, I was certainly dubious. And then after a while you think, well, no, it is working. And I don't know why it's working. I don't know how it's working um, <laughs> because, you know, but, but it, but it is working. And, you know, I just, it, it's, it's, when I say the best of luck to him I, and, and I hope it all works out, I just, you know, it, it's kind of just with the way that Formula One is now, you know, it's changed since he was, he was last in it, but it's only a little bit of getting used to it. You know, I think the biggest thing for him is, is, is the tyres. Everything else he'll get used to very, very quickly. All right. So just two questions left. One is you've got a lot of fans out there. <laughs> <laughs> you really have. And I'm not just talking about the wife and two kids. Um, uh, and they all want to know what you're going to do next. You've said already in, in, during the course of our chat that a bit of time out, maybe a few projects away from formula one but what can you tell us do, will you do you want to come back to formula one where are you looking have the has the telephone been red hot uh it's been hot yes <laughs> i don't know what <laughs> i don't know it'll calibrate between hot and red hot yeah yeah as and and you know i think i i was saying to you last week that 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 it, i guess i'm hugely fortunate that that's the case i'm not Really, I quite often put the phone down to people and think, well, that was really nice, but, you know, I've got no idea why you think so highly of me. Anyway, you do. I, I guess what what I've got to do now, you know, I've, I've, I've said to people that I don't want to make a, a quick decision, you know, because when I go into something, we, we touched on it earlier, I'm, I'm all in. I can't be half in. And so when I go into it, it's I'm going to be committed to something for, you know, maybe for the for the rest of my Formula One career. That's definitely a, a very strong possibility with me because I am I am quite a loyal person. I do believe in loyalty a lot. 
So if I can go somewhere and it works well, then then it may be for the rest of my Formula One career that that I I become ensconced somewhere. So it's got to be the right thing, you know. And I do I don't want to do something for because it looks good, you know, for for a year or two. That's that's just not me. And I've got to really decide, you know, whether or not I want to be part of a project, if you like, that is going to build into something or whether or not I want to be part of an established team that, you know, every Sunday morning when you get out of bed, you know, you've got skin in the game, you know, you know, there's a strong possibility that you're going to win. And, you know, it's nice that, you know, there's conversations ongoing with, with both ends of that spectrum. So I will um, return. Don't worry, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I will return in, in, in some way, shape or other. Um, but it's, I just need some time to think about, you know, where that will be, but it will, you know, I'm, I'm almost certainly it will cover either end of that spectrum. Do you still get a buzz walking into the garage engines being turned over? Does that still? Yeah, it does. Send a tingle. Yeah, it does. It does. Of course it does. You know, there's, there's nothing like Saturday and Sunday afternoon, you know, it's incredible. And, and to see that, that all that teamwork, you know, suddenly come together in putting two cars out on the track. And especially when you've got, you know, especially when, you, when you're when you in with a shout of, of, of a decent result, there's, there's nothing like it. I, I love that. I love sitting in the middle of the pit wall and and, and kind of being the, the, the conductor to this incredibly talented orchestra. Yeah, I still get a buzz. I, I get the same buzz as I did when that, when, when that latent house mechanic, you know, dragged us into the garage, you know, back in the in the ancient 80s and showed us the the first time I've been up close to a Formula One car. I love it. That's a great place to end it. Rob, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks very much. Who'd have thought an engineer could be such a great storyteller? I loved his tales about working at Ferrari and Williams and his relationship with Felipe Massa in particular. Thanks for your time, Rob. You've had an amazing career so far and best of luck with whatever comes next. I have no doubt that we'll see you back at the forefront of Formula One very soon. Well, that's it for this week, but of course we'll be back soon with another F1 guest that you won't want to miss. In the meantime, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to Beyond the Grid to make sure our podcast is waiting for you every Wednesday. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. And please keep getting in touch because we love your feedback. Many of you seem to enjoy last week's episode with Emerson Fittipaldi. And to Viz Patel, who struggled to keep listening when Emo got emotional while talking about Ayrton Senna, I felt exactly the same as you. And I was interviewing him. It was an incredibly powerful moment. If you'd like to drop us a line and potentially get a shout out from yours truly, use the hashtag F1BeyondTheGrid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audioboom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>